He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. I'm just a good old boy, trying to be a good old man, out here learning on the fly, trying to do the best I can. Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Fatherhood Podcast. I am Brett Etheridge, co-host of the podcast, not joined in this episode by Perry Hughes, who is with his family in the deep recesses of Colorado somewhere <laughs> with without any sort of internet connection, cell phone coverage. Uh, but that's very much Perry, as you guys know. So Perry, as you're listening to this after the fact, we uh, we wish you well, hope that you are doing well and having a great time with your family. But we are joined today by a very special guest, Seth Johnson of IA Mercy. Seth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. Good to be with you, Brett. And did I actually say that right? Do you say I am mercy or I am it's mercy? I am mercy, but there's only one M in I am mercy. I a m e r c y dot org. Uh, so if you if you if you spell it out like it sounds, you won't get there. But so I a <laughs> mercy. Yes. Well, and I love the play on words. I am mercy. Right. I mean, I love that idea. Right. But but it stands for the the International Alliance. Uh, for mercy. For mercy, yeah. exactly. So yes. perfect. Uh, and this is a conversation long in the making. So when I first started Faithful Fatherhood, the podcast at least, a little over a year ago, I was talking to a really good family friend. In fact, she uh, was my wife's maid of honor. And I was just talking about sort of what, what I was getting into and embarking on. And without hesitation, she said, I have no idea what you have planned for this podcast and what you're doing, but you have to talk to my friend, Seth Johnson. Wow. Fast forward a year later, we've, we've tried. We, Seth and I have been in some, some communication over the past several months. And here we are over a year later, but, but I, I firmly believe that God's timing is perfect. And so Amen. this is the right time for this conversation. And I am super excited to have it. So again, welcome. And I'll I'll certainly give you the opportunity, Seth, to talk a lot about what you're doing. So Seth, Seth's work, his organization is active in Nairobi, Kenya, working in a lot of different facets, feeding, feeding hungry children, mm-hmm. providing an outlet to, to young mothers who might find themselves pregnant out of wedlock and just right. needing some help and support. And, and you do lots of other things, but you're very much following Jesus's call to serve the widows and orphans. And so mm. I, I love that. But in the process, you've learned a lot about what it, what it means to be a father and what it means to see God father the fatherless. And so that's really the conversation I want to have today. So super excited about that. Uh, just to kick things off, though, maybe tell us a little bit about your childhood. What was your, like, what What are some of the fondest memories of your own father? Was he active and present in your life? What do you remember of your childhood? Yeah. Yeah. I was blessed to have a great childhood, actually. Uh, so dad, while I was younger, was actually a, a bivocational pastor for a while and very godly and good man. And my mom is a prayer warrior uh, was, you know, very strong woman of faith uh, when I was growing up and even stronger actually now. So uh, great parents, they were very present. And uh, I really learned a lot about what it means to be a parent from them. Uh, so I was blessed to have a really good father. 
and they were very present in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And so certainly you take some of those lessons into what you strive to be as a father yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you, so do you have biological children? Are you married? But I know you have a lot of adopted children from your time over in Kenya. Yeah. I, so I, I am not married. I have no biological children and actually don't want biological children. I'm not saying no to marriage or biological children, but that is not kind of the burden that God has put on my heart. Uh, So uh, I remember before the Lord called me to Kenya. So I went to Kenya in 2014 and received a really powerful calling that was right up there uh, with almost my conversion experience. So I, I was converted when I was 16. Well, you know, uh, when I was 32, so 16 years later, is when I had my calling. But when I was probably about 30, so two years before that, I remember uh, laying in bed one night and just having the sense of, Lord, am I going to ever get married? Am I ever going to have children? And uh, the Lord said to me, essentially, Seth, you do not need to have biological children in order to be a father. Yeah, I love that. I did not know what he was going to do in my life when I was 32 at that time. Uh, and when I was 32, really, my calling to Kenya was actually a calling to come and be a father. And I did not know what all that was going to mean. But boy, have I been finding out over the last uh, nine years. Okay, well, let's <laughs> yeah. uh, let's unpack that. I want to hear about that. But I just I just love that idea that we can be called to fatherhood without biological kids of our own. How many kids do you have now, though? And we'll talk about. I know several of them and sort of how they came into your life and sure. how you became their adoptive father, and, right. and you've played even a fatherhood role to hundreds, probably even more right. than that. But how many kids do you have, or would you say you have yeah. currently? Yeah, so it depends on what you mean by dad, right? But I have four that are under my care the way you would kind of traditionally think about it. You know, we sleep under the same roof. We eat at the same table. Um, You know, they go to school in the morning, come back in the afternoon. We eat dinner and watch Netflix. (laughs) So (laughs) kind of the things you would think about. We go on family vacation together. And, um, you know, so that I have four. Moses, who I got when he was 15 years old, um, and he was one of the original 12 to start coming to the feeding and gospel ministry that I started in 2015. In well, March let me yeah, let me interrupt you. So let's get to that point in the story. How does sure. how does a white man from Roanoke, Virginia, yeah. yeah, end up living and working and doing ministry in Nairobi, Kenya? Right, right. So there's kind of a backstory. I had been a donor helping to support a very small ministry in in Nairobi that was helping uh, mostly former street boys to get off of the street. Um, so st- street children in Nairobi are the poorest of the poor. You know, they beg, they dig through trash for food, sleep under cars and kiosks, frequently become addicted to really low-grade drugs, like the glue that holds our shoes together or um, fuel from a car. They'll put it in a bottle and sniff it. And um, I had been a donor helping to support a small ministry of street boys that were no longer being called street boys. They would be called saint boys. And uh, I was given my, you know, couple hundred bucks a month for a while and went over to 
to check on that ministry in 2014. Um, it was small enough that I, I was able to go over with the founder of it who had since left the field. And when we checked on it, it just was not, um, wasn't what we'd hoped it was. Gotcha. <laughs> and in the process, though, I felt God calling me to go and be a, a dad to those boys and young men that I had met. And there were seven. And uh, that they, they were all in their upper teens uh, and even early 20s when I went. So they have all moved out and started their lives a long time ago now. They're all well into their 20s. Um, so that's how I got there. Uh, but when I got there, I knew that the, the, the ministry was supposed to grow. And so, um, and I didn't know how it was supposed to grow. And meanwhile, I would go out to uh, the local mall that's a quarter of a mile walk from my apartment and buy coffee or groceries for the house. And kids that were still on the street would beg, help me with food, help me with water. And so I'd buy them like peanuts or something. And um, did you always have did, yeah. did you always have a soft heart towards kids? You know, I, I think I think a lot of men. I've I've been in Madagascar. I've actually been to Nairobi in a very different capacity than you. It was sort of a launching pad to a safari, and right. And you know, people people experience that exact same situation in uh -huh. very different ways. Some people walk uh -huh. right past it. Some people pretend right. it doesn't exist. Right. So, and some people are incredibly moved by it. Want to do something for those kids. Have you always, had, even before God called you to be a father, did you feel like you wanted to be a father? Did you always have a soft heart for, for kids in need? I knew I wanted to be a father, but the answer to the second question is no. Interesting. I did not. I mean, so this was like, whoa, I didn't see this coming. Um, so it's not, yeah, no. Um, but when I went, boy, did I get one. <laughs> you know, so I felt very moved. Um, and, and I felt moved even before I went to help those street boys that became the saint boys that I ended up feeling the call to become a dad to them. When, when I heard that story, my heart, you know, just was torn open for them, but that was the beginning of something new for me. Mm. That's, it's not like I grew up thinking this is what I'm going to do with my life. No. Um, so yeah, the, you know, kids that were still on the street would beg, you know, help me with food, help me with water. And then I felt the Lord saying, Seth, why don't you just help them? Hmm. And so one day I was buying, you know, five or six uh, street boys uh, who had been begging some bananas or something at a kiosk. And I said, if you want food, meet me Saturday morning at 10 a.m. And I pointed the way to the street corner where my apartment uh, is in Nairobi. And I said, meet me on the street there. We'll have Bible study and prayer and there'll be food there. And so myself and, um, you know, those sons that I originally moved for, we were frying up eggs in the house and putting them between white bread, like egg sandwiches, mixing up Kool-Aid. And 12 boys showed up that first weekend. And we kept that going. And so now here we are eight years later, and we have seven to 800 coming out every Saturday. Wow. This past Saturday, we had 816 coming uh, to hear about Jesus and get a hot meal and work through the life of Christ. And so through the years, as the older ones moved out, one by one, God would put one particular uh, boy in that street feeding on my heart. And they would come into my home, and I became dad to them. And so now I have four. Okay, and the first one was Moses. Moses, 
is not the first one that came in, but he was one of the first ones to start coming to the feeding program. Okay. So he started coming when he was probably 12 or 13, uh, maybe 13. He moved in when he was 15, and now he's 21. Um, he is behind because of all the years he lost to the street. Uh, so he's a sophomore in high school. Um, John came in when he was 11 in 2015. I think we're going to probably talk more about John. Um, he is 18 now, and he is a freshman in uh, high school. Branton came in about a year later when he was 11, and now he's 17, about to have his big 18th birthday party when I get back from furlough. Nice. And then um, Steve-O is the last one to come in. He came in in 2020 uh, at the age of five, and he is eight now in second grade. Yeah, so he's he's your youngest. Yes. Let's talk uh, – I want to settle here for a moment and really sort of unpack – what are the needs of kids who are fatherless? In other words, I, I want to I talk about how you grew into the role of father and lessons around fatherhood. But I want to start with the kids because I, I wonder if there are parallels really universally, right? Your experience is in Nairobi, but what do you identify in the kids who come to the feedings at your ministry? I imagine most of them are, are fa- what we would call fatherless, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't have an active father in their lives. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. A lot of what are they? What are they missing? What, what emotionally, what spiritually, what are the biggest needs you identify in a child who is fatherless? Yeah. So to to correct something you said earlier about orphans, okay, they are not mostly orphans. Okay. Um, so first of all, not all the children that come to our ministry are street children. You know, we have now boys and girls coming on Saturdays, uh, and they're not all street children. In fact, the majority are not. They're just really poor kids from the slum. But the typical profile of, let's say, a street boy is not a total orphan. The typical profile is. Uh, dad got mom pregnant. At some point, dad left mom. Uh, mom uh, had a hard time surviving, got a new man in her life, stepdad. Stepdad, you're not stepdad's biological child. And he will put up with you for a while while you're young, but he doesn't really want you there and will make that felt. And he sure doesn't want to be paying for your food and your school fees and may be horribly abusive or may just be really neglectful. And eventually life gets so hard that you say, it's not worth it. And maybe I can make a go of it on the street, just, you know, recycling scrap metals. Or, hey, I'm a, I'm a kid and I can go to a place where wealthier people or Westerners shop and beg and they'll give me some money, you know, because I'm a cute kid and, and they'll help me. And then... You'd get a little older and you're not that cute kid anymore. And um, you're not somebody that is going to get a lot of money begging anymore. And addiction starts to set in. And uh, you're trying to escape any way you can. So you put some glue in a bottle or some fuel in a bottle and you sniff it and then kind of become the walking dead. That's the typical profile of a street boy on their way to becoming a street man. Which I would say sounds very familiar to the experience of a lot of boys growing up in America. A lot of those boys, though, then turn to gangs and things like that as well for acceptance. Is there a lot of that in Kenya? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, eventually you get to the point where begging, you're not um, a kid anymore and just not going to be eligible for those kinds of 
gifts, I guess you would say. And uh, recycling scrap metals doesn't pay a lot. So you turn to stealing, um, you know, so and so a lot of uh, young men on the street um, will become a victim of mob justice um, where, you know, in, in Kenya, basically you get caught trying to steal. Somebody cries out thief, thief, and uh, the mob attacks you and beats you to death. Um, I know this is very graphic, but um, sometimes they'll burn you to death, put a tire around you and douse you with kerosene and burn you to death. And that is the fate of many a street boy becoming a street man. Hmm. So it's reality. I mean, it's just reality. Yes. And so much of it stems from lack of a faithful father, as we would call it. Yeah, it not just, having it, a present dad. Dad's right. gone. He may be dead or he just may not want you. And the new dad doesn't want you either. And so then what what are the benefits then that you see from somebody like yourself stepping in? It, are these kids redeemable? Mm -hmm, uh, obviously, yes. we know that the answer is yes. So talk, talk about that experience then. So the, these children are hungry for a consistent, reliable yeah. male figure in their life, a father. Yes, right. And that, that, that again, I would say is, is universal. That certainly is the experience of what, what I've seen here in the United States is there's, there's a longing for that, for somebody to fill that void, that vacuum to say that you are loved, you are accepted. I want you. I want to mm -hmm. take care of you. Right. Talk about how you right. grew into that role. The first time yeah. one of the children who shows up for a feeding moves into your home and now it's like, whoa, Like, because a lot of us, we learned how to be a father because mm -hmm. we watched this thing grow in our wife's belly for nine mm -hmm. months and then we learned how to take care of it. And it just sort of just sort of evolves, but I was actually an adoptive father first. So somewhat similarly to you, perhaps I had to learn how to be a father to a you know toddlers or you know whatever. Right. But 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 the point is, either way, we're stepping in, we're trying to learn, we're trying to figure out what this child needs. Who now looks to me and says, right. like dad, dad, like what do I right. do with that? How did you learn yes. how to be a father? Yeah, right. So. Um I think maybe one of the best stories to tell is John's story yeah, here. Yeah, please. Um, so, because I got thrown into the deep end, uh, you know, I came and the original seven were all older, you know, um, in, young men in some cases or late teenagers. And so a lot of trial and error there, you know. Uh, John started coming to the feeding when he was uh, 10. And uh, I didn't think he was a street boy at first, you know, so he just starts showing up. He's got these bright pink pants on, um, just a really cute kid. And I thought he was a friend of somebody's. I, I thought, you know, I didn't think he was a street boy. I didn't know what he was doing at our feeding. And then finally I asked around, I was like, whose friend is this? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so my other sons who were older, you know, were like, well, we don't, we don't know that kid. And so I was like, huh. So, um, so he starts coming, and I don't think he's a street boy, but then, you know, those bright pink pants, Saturday after Saturday, start getting dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. And then I go out one Saturday for a feeding, um, and he's washing his uh, hands in kind of the runoff sewage water from the mall near our apartment. And um, so I'm like, hmm. And at that time, 
he was really one of the younger kids because most of the boys that were coming were early teenagers or middle teenagers, you know, 13, 14, 15. And so I'm like, hmm, this kid's kind of young here for our group. And so one day I had gone to the mall uh, and I was I was getting out to have some time alone by myself. Uh, you know, so I go to the Mediterranean restaurant, just me, myself, and I yeah. <laughs> to relax. <laughs> you know, so recharge, recharge the batteries. Right, right, eating tiramisu or something. Yeah. Just getting out of the house. And on my way back from that restaurant at the mall, and it's a short walk, quarter of a mile, I um I see John and some of the other boys on the street. And uh, so I say to one of the the boys on the street, one of the older ones, I say, hey, you know, what's going on with this boy? What's his name? What's his story? So he tells me, oh, his name is John. We've kind of taken him under our wing, you know, helping to look after him. Well, I kind of felt like, wow, this is tragic. I mean, this boy is so young. So I don't do anything. I get back to my apartment and I'm like, well, what am I doing? I, I should do something at least. So I tell one of my uh, older sons in the apartment, hey, go out and look for a boy on the street named John. Just invite him to come in and like take a shower or something. So he brings in John. John comes in. Hey, John, uh, would you like to take a shower? Yes. Okay. So while he's in the shower, we're like running around the house trying to find clothes that will fit a 10-year-old. Because remember, (laughs) mine are all older. Uh, he gets out of the shower. We've got some clothes that are way too big for him, but at least it's something. And um, John, would you like to stay for dinner? Yes. Um, after dinner, John, would you like to spend the night here? Yes. So I um, get up in the morning and John slept in the living room and I go into the kitchen, which is adjacent to our living room, and I'm fixing myself some coffee. And John comes in and just gives me this huge hug and um, pretty quickly starts to call me dad. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) you know, moving a little fast. Yeah. I'm like, what, what am I going to, anyway, so I tell, you know, one of my older sons, go to the slum with John, see if you can track down his mom. You know, why is this boy on the street? Maybe we can reunite him with his family. 10 is too young. Just see what we can do. Um, So. They go to the slum, trying to track down the mom, and uh, they don't find the mom. She's out looking for John. Uh, Okay. So they find a grandmother figure, not his actual biological grandmother, but a grandmother figure. And she says, you can't take John back to his mom. She's horribly abusive. John has run away to me multiple times, you know, and I would take him in, but the mom hunts him down and demands him back. But if you take him back to his mom, then your blood, his blood be on your head. Hmm. And so brought him back to me. And so I said, John, you know, what's going on here? Are you being abused? And so he begins to show me marks all over his body where his mom was abusing him. Um, his first memory is of when he was just a small kid and his dad was holding him up as a human shield while the mom came at him with a knife. Um, His mom used to pick him up by his ears and he would go to bed with his ears hurting. Uh, Really abusive. So I was like, what are we going to do? I mean, you know, I 
his mom's out working, looking for him, but he's here. I don't feel like I can take him back to the mom, but I think the legal word for this is kidnapping. You know, <laughs> right. I was like, what am I going to do? And um, so I said, okay, see if you can find the biological dad. So they tracked down the biological dad in another part of town. The dad confirms the stories. Oh, yeah, she's horribly abusive. His solution was when he would find out the mom was abusing John, he would go and beat up the mom. You know, so kind of a quid pro quo. I'll beat her when she beats you relationship, you know. Um, So and the dad was like, look, I've let him run away to me, too. I'd be okay with him staying here, but I can't be here all the time. And, you know, when uh, when I'm not here, the mom will just come and find him, take him right back. So I asked if they would sign some custody papers for us so that we could have John just for the holidays. So also to correct something else, you said, because I am a foreigner, I can't legally adopt, but I can get custody papers signed so that I have custody. Um, and does it have to be by both? I mean, obviously, it sounds like the father was willing. So again, here's a, an example of a father who doesn't really want to play the father role with his biological son, but at least he seems somewhat amenable. Did you have uh-huh. to get her signature too, or the grandmother's or what? Well, by God's grace, I'll get there. So yes. So what happened was at first, no, we, we just got the biological dads, you know, we're like, we're just going to have to work with that for now. Cause we knew we couldn't turn him back over to the mom. So, um, so John spends Christmas with us. Uh, you know, there's, this really cute picture of him getting the soccer ball at Christmas that year in 2015. And um, of course, you know, over the holiday, my heart just, you know, melds to John, you know, so by the time the Christmas season is over, I'm now thinking to myself, wow, I just can't imagine losing John now. So, but the holiday's over. We only got custody for the holiday. So now I have to send him back. I send him back with um, an older I Am Mercy staff worker to the father's property. And I say, please see what you can do to see if we can get custody of him for longer. And um, so they go to uh, the property. Well, by God's grace, uh, there's a funeral happening on the family premises. Um, Not that that I'm rooting for death, but there's a burial (laughs) happening. The whole family is gathered. They start to affirm, yeah, oh man, the mom is bad news. You know, so we're getting confirmation of the stories. The mom shows up. They call a family meeting. Now, the mom doesn't acknowledge what she's been doing to John, but she's like, yeah, I can see how it would be hard for John because I have a new man in my life. It's not a real good situation for him, but I don't want him with the biological death. So they call a family meeting, bring in the kind of the head of the family, who's an uncle figure. And they all decide together that the best place for John to be is with the ministry. You know, so we, they call it the ministry. Sure. Praise so, Jesus. Yeah. And they, they signed papers granting me custody of John uh, that day. And that was when he was 11. And he celebrated his 18th birthday in December of last year. So now he's a legal adult and we don't have to be concerned about that any longer, you know, because the the problem with custody papers, the fly in that ointment is the family could demand custody back at any time because they're still legally the guardians. Uh, You know, with these four, that has never been a problem. 
Um, but still, you know, it's the fly in the ointment of custody. Um, but now John's a legal adult and he can stay wherever he wants to stay. Um, so that's how we got John. Yeah, that's really to. cool. And I'm sure it was, you know, roses and unicorns and, and rainbows <laughs> for the past seven years, right? So talk about your learning curve, either with John or any of your four or all of your four, though, for you to come into their lives after trauma, after abandonment issues, yeah, after yeah. neglect, by yeah. the way, all things that... I know some of the fathers listening to this podcast may be dealing with, especially in adoptive situations. How do you move into a boy's life at that point where he already has firm opinions on things, might be a little resistant to authority? How did yeah. things go when you disciplined him or sent him into yeah, his room yeah. for the first time? Or like, yeah, right. Talk about that. What are some of your learnings as sure. you have learned what it means to be a faithful father in the lives yeah. of your kids? Yeah, right. So, um, first of all, one of the things I've learned, getting kids as young as possible makes it a whole lot easier. So John came in when he was 11. Branton came in a year later when he was 11. And Steve-O came in at the age of five. Um, that is a lot easier than getting them at 15, 16, or even already adults, you know? Sure. A lot easier. Um, and because there's just... A lot of learning each other and malleability that is implicit in being 11 or 5 that is not implicit in being 15 or 18, you know. Um, so, yeah, with John, no, it was not all, uh, like you said, roses and unicorns. Um, you know, I remember he was a lot younger than the other kids. And first of all, he and Branton, you know, they came in a year apart. They had seen a lot of trauma. Um, you know, Branton had seen um, mob justice. He had seen someone burned to death. Um, Branton's first memory is of his younger brother dying. Mm. His second memory is over his mom of his of his mom leaving, and they and his dad and his, and his mom fighting over his body. His mom wanted to take him, and the dad insisted no. And um, they wrestled over his body. His mom left, and she never came back for him. He wanted to go with her and she never came back for him. And then the dad would just give him 10 cents in the morning and tell him to take care of himself for the day. And so he learned to survive, smoked pot for the first time when he was eight years old, um, became really good at stealing. You know, Branton, um, I mean, before the age of 10, he, I mean, the most he ever stole was about $700. And he was so good at it, he would tell people, kids, if you want to learn how to steal and survive, come follow me. You know, so he was a leader. <laughs> but let's, caught, let's, funnel, let's funnel this in the right direction, son. <laughs> right, right, right. Got caught, spent a couple nights in jail. Um, and the, the chief officer said, if I ever catch you again doing this, I'll put you in juvenile detention. And that scared him straight. But John, when he came in at 11, and Branton a year later, when he came in at 11, they wet the bed for a year. They wet the bed for a year. If they hear this podcast, they'll kill me. But you're not seeing their faces, right? So, That's right. So, That's right. Um, they, um, they had experienced a lot of trauma. And then after about a year, for both of them, that stopped. I remember being so happy because I was like, we can buy new mattresses and the room will no longer smell like urine. So... Um, so anyway, yeah, discipline. I mean, John was a lot younger 
than the other kids. So he would have to go to bed earlier. And he didn't want to go to bed earlier. He was used to going to bed whenever he wanted to go to bed. On the street, nobody tells you when to go to bed. Nobody tells you to do anything, you know? And so there was a lot of pouting, a lot of wailing. I remember, you know, I'd send him to his room for bed and he would scream in that back room. I mean, loud wails. I was like, oh my goodness, people are going to think, what are they going to think is happening to this child? You know, I mean, stomping around the house, you know, so, but eventually, you know, he, he accepted it and matured, you know, John, uh, Branton, same thing, you know, Branton, um, were probably it took Branton longer to learn that crying doesn't get him what he wants, but he definitely played that card for probably two or three years. Branton played the crying card, you know. Um, Did you have conversations with them explaining why and it's my responsibility and it's for your own good and those types of things? I mean, Hebrews talks about discipline leads to to freedom, you know. Yeah, ultimately, I was just and, that this morning, Hebrews twelve. That's yeah. it. And we and right. we hear that deep down, kids sort of crave structure and even yes. discipline. And when right. they don't have it, even at a subconscious level, they they really kind of want it. They wish they had it. You know, it yeah. is that true? Have you seen that to be the case? You said they Absolutely. eventually did yeah. respond to it. Yeah, I've learned two things. First of all, too much discipline is a bad thing. Actually. And too little discipline is a bad thing. It really is a Goldilocks middle bowl, you know, and it's more complicated the older they get, you know. So, so um, you know, but yes, um, they do want structure. Um, they want and they want love. You know, they want love. Yeah. So uh, we we we've. We call my home, when we started it, we were calling, you know, I was fundraising under the rubric of the St. Boys Project. Uh, my sons, if they hear me use that language, they balk at it. They're like, we are not a project. That's we a good point, are the though. Johnson family. That's right? right. That's right. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree. We started using that terminology when we started the ministry and fundraising. But you're right. You know, and if, if anybody calls it that, they're like, we're not a project. We're the Johnsons. And, and, and they're right, you know, and that's exactly part of it. Discipline has to be in the context of love, sonship, you know, um, because you're my son, I don't want you doing this. You know, it's not good for you. It's not good for us. It's not good for our family for me to kind of let you do this. It will train you that you can do this and get away with it. It'll train you that if you don't get your way for your whole life, you can cry and that will get you your way. And when you're when you're 11, that's kind of, well, it's a little, I don't know where to put it, but it doesn't work when you're 21. Doesn't work when you're 41, you know? And so, yes, lots of conversations along the road that are very necessary and lots of apologies, lots of, you know what? I got that wrong. Um, you know, so one of the um, things a friend of mine said recently, um, so I've got a friend um, here in Roanoke, uh, Serge uh, Dupriguillaume. And his, uh, I guess, number one rule of parenting is apologize often. Mm. Apologize often. 
And I was like, that is a really great thing to bear in mind. Um, when you get it wrong, um, be willing to say, I didn't handle that right. You know, uh, I, I was too strong. I wasn't strong enough. I was whatever, you know, but be willing to say, I got that one wrong. And I have seen kids when they know that you really are trying to discipline them out of love. You know, and there have been times where I've had to sit them down and say, I could be getting this wrong. I want to tell you why I'm doing this. Um, and this is why, you know, uh, but if I get it wrong, I'll be willing to apologize later. When they know that you love them, it goes a very long way. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. There, I have some follow on questions to that. I was wondering if you might want to maybe also share. Uh, the story of Vincent, because I yeah, think there's sure. a lot of applicability there. Yeah. And then I have some follow-on questions sure. as we sort of wrap up this conversation. I, yeah. I'm loving learning the the learnings. You know, how how did you learn to be a father, and what can we then apply in our own fathering journey? So I want to talk more about that. But but uh, maybe share share Vincent's story quickly yeah. for the listeners. Sure. Yeah. So Vincent, um, he was born a, a country. Uh, so between Uganda, the Uganda Kenya border about eight hours from Nairobi, uh, son of Lawrence Songa and Evelyn Pamba. And he was the fifth of, I think, six children, so big family. And when he was in the womb, Lawrence left Vincent's mom to go to Nairobi to look for greener pastures. And um, so, as you can imagine, you know, life in uh, upcountry was not easy for a single mom with all those kids. And so when Vincent was between one and two, Evelyn said, let's go to Nairobi and look for dad. You know, so she and the kids go to Nairobi, lots of knocking on doors, takes them a while to find him. But eventually they track him down in the Kabira slum. That's the biggest slum in East Africa. And it's about a 30 minute walk from my apartment. And um, they find him there. I mean, living in a small mud room, and he's found a job as a watchman, but he's in a bad way. He's become addicted to moonshine, uh, the local moonshine called Changa. Um, and so what little bit of money he earns, he spends it on alcohol, comes home, beats his wife, beats the children, and he especially hates Vincent, um, says Vincent is not his biological son. Now, apparently, Vincent is the spitting image of Lawrence, but Lawrence said, this one's not mine. And so he spent a lot of his hatred on Vincent. And um, when Vincent was five years old, uh, you know, he's in the, in the home one day, single mudroom. Remember, we're not talking a big mansion of a house here, single mudroom in the slum. And he's in the home and Lawrence starts covering him in paper sacks hmm. and uh, looks for kerosene to douse Vincent in it. And uh, wants to light him on fire. And uh, Evelyn, the mom, just starts screaming. Neighbors come into the house. A tussle ensues. They're able to rescue Vincent. But as you can imagine, now Vincent doesn't want to come home a lot. You know, so instead of coming home at night, he'll want to sleep on a you know, chair at a friend's house or on a floor at a friend's house or even in a kiosk. You know, not anything meant for human habitation rather than come home. Um, but he loves his dad. I mean, he, he, he loved Lawrence, could not understand why Lawrence hated him. 
And uh, eventually, Lawrence got really sick. Uh, Vincent took care of them, a lot of vomit, and Vincent would clean up that vomit, dispose of it, and Lawrence died. And uh, so Evelyn, when Vincent's about 11, says, look, life is too hard here in Nairobi. I'm going back up country and left Vincent in um, Nairobi to try to finish primary school. So now he's not only does he not have a dad in Nairobi, he doesn't have a mom and he's a vagabond. Yeah. Um, but finishes primary school, you know, sleeping wherever he can. And eventually gets a real, somebody discovers his talent. And by his second year of high school, he's in a really good boarding school near Nairobi where they're paying, it's a scholarship situation because he's a really good soccer player. So he plays soccer for that boarding school. And a certain uh, Mr. Karimi, who's a teacher there, kind of takes Vincent under his wing. And when Vincent finishes high school, um, you know, he lets Vincent stay with him for a little while while he's trying to get on his feet. But even though Vincent had a place to stay and finished high school, he was emotionally and psychologically just devastated. Um, and the record that was playing in his head was you're worthless, you're useless, you're alone. Um, so one night, Mr. Creamy's on a school trip and Vincent finds himself alone in a room sleeping on the floor in Mr. Karimi's house. And uh, he decides it's time to end it. So he sends um, his friends a message that says, tell my mom how much I love her. And he turns off his phone and makes a decision he's going to get up and go into the kitchen and, and slit his wrists. Uh, while he is standing up to go into the kitchen and do it, uh, the Lord spoke to him for the first time in his life. Um, he knew about Jesus. He'd heard the gospel, but he didn't know Jesus. And Jesus spoke to him and said, go take a walk. So he did. He goes outside, no coat, you know, really cold that night, he says. And he walks from 12 midnight till 3.30 in the morning. And while he was on that walk, uh, the Lord said to him, no, you are not useless. You're not worthless. You're a lion. You can overcome all of these things. It is not that there is no love. I love you. I love you. And that gave Vincent the hope that he needed to go on. But he still didn't really know what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus yet. But he started calling himself uh, Simba, Lion, after the name that the Lord had given to him. Well, I got to know Vincent well in 2019 um, when he was 21. Um, and uh, Vincent, by 2019, our feeding program had gotten to be about 200 kids. Uh, so I needed help just with activities and somebody that was really good at kids and somebody recommended Vincent. And I said, yeah, I have him come. So Vincent is great with kids, great at activities, you know, just kind of a fun personality. And um, so he starts coming and really gloms on to the Johnson family. Um, he didn't have a place to go to church, and so I'd give him some transport money, and he would meet us at church on Sunday morning. And then that turned into, hey, uh, can I spend Saturday night with you guys, and then we'll get up and go to church together? Sure. And then December of 2019, uh, he spent Christmas with us, and then he spent New Year's with us. And before I know it, I look around and realize he spent the whole month of December with us. <laughs> and um, 
at some point I said to him, you know, Vincent, you know, you're 21. And if you want to do much work for I am mercy, then I need you to get your legal ID. He, he hadn't gotten his legal ID yet. And so I said, you need to go to the Ugandan border and sort out your legal paperwork. And so, you know, his memory of this story is that as I was sending him, I gave him this tight hug and said to him, son, go safely. And when you reach, call me. Yeah. And when I said that to him and uh, gave him that tight hug, it just clicked for him. I was the father that he had been looking for. And he started calling me dad. And I started calling him son. And um, in March of 2020, COVID hit. And uh, we had 250 mouths to feed. Um, and we couldn't do it at our center because we couldn't have everybody come in. And so I needed somebody to coordinate all of that. And Vincent proved himself as an excellent leader. Started keeping these lists um, we had a two-room unit in the slum. The back part was for storing food. The front part was his bedroom and our first I Am Mercy office. So we had a bed in there, a filing cabinet, and an office table, which served as his dining room table as well. And he managed to give away for food for 250 people, making sure they got it at the right time, and just really proved himself as a leader. And then... Um, we started doing intense Bible studies with the staff going through the book of Romans. And while we did that, it, it clicked for Vincent what it meant to give his life to Jesus, what it really meant to know this Jesus who had been revealing himself and to make that commitment of faith. And in uh, 2021, September 13, 2021, uh, I got to baptize him. And um, about a month after his baptism, you know, he's just a remarkable leader. He comes to me and he says, Dad, you know, we're reaching all these kids through the feeding program. But I think if we would go into the schools, we could reach even more kids. So I said, have at it. So he starts taking a team of people going into the schools, a lot of rejections, a lot of no, we don't do that kind of thing here. But Vincent is not a quitter. And a year and 10 months later, he and his team are in six schools in the slum in front of 3,000 kids a week, 3,000 kids a week sharing the gospel, going through the life of Christ. And uh, right before I left Nairobi for furlough, he brought me seven high schoolers who wanted to give their lives to Jesus and got to lead them to Christ and baptize them. And um, last year when I came back from furlough, I uh, had the great joy of having a house wedding for Vincent and his now wife, Jennifer. And uh, pronouncing them man and wife, I got to, you know, pronounce them husband and wife. And um, he and Jennifer have had a biological child of their own, Jedediah, which means loved of the Lord. And he inherited um, a boy named Abel that Jennifer had from a previous relationship. And instead of showing that hatred that his biological father had shown him, he's showing Abel the love of a father. And... Um, calling Abel by his own last name, Sangha, and raising Abel as his own. Uh, and there's a generational impact that's happening here. But it is, I would say, the primary thing, Brett, is each of these sons, yes, I am their father, but God is their father. And teaching, that is the primary thing, teaching each of these sons to have a relationship with God as Father, with Jesus as Lord, with the Holy Spirit, um, 
that is central. You know, it's kind of like it, as we all move to that center of gravity, you know, this would be my number one piece of parenting advice. If Jesus is the center of the home and we're all moving to that center of gravity, we're all going to get closer. When I start pulling away, we get farther apart. When any of the children start pulling away, we get farther apart because, you know, Jesus is the only thing that can really hold us together. Yeah. You know, whether it's as individuals as or as a family, you know, and so we have our own distinct ways of doing it. So at night, not every night, but a lot of nights, we, you know, read a passage, we go through a book of scripture. So right now we're going through the book of Judges and, um, you know, pray together before the meal and uh, periodically. And when I say periodically, I mean like once every year or six months or so, we will have a day of fasting as a family. We'll ask Steve-O not to eat breakfast. He's the eight-year-old. And the rest of us, the goal is to just, whenever we get up and don't eat until sunset, and spend a special time in prayer and worship. And what I have seen is, boy, these, these sons, they have such an alive and vibrant relationship with the Lord on their own. They are teaching me things through their relationship with Christ. Um it's powerful. I mean, you know, John can read my mood in a nanosecond, you know, <laughs> and dad, are you okay today? You know, yeah. and um, they're walking with the Lord on their own. Now, Steve-O's still growing up into that. You know, Steve-O's still little, but but Moses, John, and Branton, and then older sons like Vincent, who never, he didn't grow up in my house. But that individual relationship with Jesus, the best thing that I can do for my sons is help them understand God as Father and their relationship with, you know, with the Lord. Um, because I cannot meet all of their fathering or parenting needs. I cannot do it. And I'm going to make mistakes. And God forbid that they think my mistakes are not mistakes. And the only perfect parent is God. And um, leading them to him is my number one job. And I'm really happy. I mean, that they all have a relationship with the Lord, and I'm watching the older ones as they really mature in that relationship. Man, what a, what a power. I love so much about that story. What a powerful story. Just really all of those stories. But viewing myself as really an intermediary father to point my kids to the father. Vincent, Vincent at one point literally hugged you and said, you're the father I've been looking for, but you knew, no, there's one greater than I. There's one greater. There's one greater and, than I. But he needed you first. Yeah. He, uh, he a, needed you to be there role. for him. That's right. It's, it's, it's kind of a sacramental role. I mean, you know, it's um, they experience the love of God through me. That's right. But if they don't get to the point where they're experiencing the love of God and I don't have to intermediate that, they have not gotten where they need to get because I'm going to make mistakes. There are going to be times where I am a very poor representation and conduit of the love of God. Um, and so it is as they get closer and closer and then I'm still there, but that relationship is maturing. And I think about, you know, with Vincent, uh, the spiritual connection that's there, you know, so just a couple of stories, you know, um, there, there was a last year, April, I was on a prayer walk 
And I was really praying, you know, and Lord, we need, it's time for the, the mountains to be laid low and the valleys to be exalted. And I had some staffing decisions that I need, needed to make. And, and um, anyway, I, but I was alone on that prayer walk, me and God. I come back to the apartment and Vincent was coming in for a visit. And I'm standing in the living area. And as Vincent walks in the door, before there's even a greeting, he says, what's all this hullabaloo about mountains and valleys? Huh. And I, he didn't know what he was saying. I was like, why did you say that? I don't know. And, and it, but there's a spirit. And so then I tell him and I'm like, okay. And then, well, I've been on furlough. He reaches out to me. So there was one night, you know, it's midnight. I'm praying in bed uh, here in Roanoke, Virginia. And just, you know, concerned about, okay, raising money for the ministry. Um, well, the next day, Vincent sends me a message on WhatsApp. And he says, I have a word for you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he said this word about, you know, the God providing for the birds and for the flowers, basically, from Matthew. And um, don't be anxious about it. And I was like, wow, at what time did you get that word? He'd gotten it at 7 a.m., which is 12 midnight here. So as I'm praying that prayer, God is giving Vincent the answer. You know, so the... As we get older, as our sons get older, it's still a father-son relationship, but it's also a brotherly relationship because God is their father. And sometimes he uses me to speak to them, and sometimes he uses them to speak to me. Man, that's just... And to think at one point Vincent wanted to end it all, but but God, God intervened. Himself. That's exactly right. 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 He's got a plan. It's got a plan. Well, I, I'm sure we could talk for hours longer. I'd love to hear more stories about any. At one point, you said you had as many as 1,500 people come through your feeding on a Saturday. Is 1, that right? 1,555 is our biggest feeding ever. That was Holy the last smokes. feeding of last year. Yeah. yeah. So, and each each boy has a story. And and girl, you you've opened it up to girls as well, right? Right. Yeah. The feed. Yeah. So my my home is Moses, John, Branton and Stephen. They're under my care, you know, but our feeding program on Saturdays, that's open to boys and girls from the slum. And so, yes. Yeah. And, and that caps out at the age of 20. Okay. So we have little kids all the way up to, you know, about the age of 20 coming for that. Spend just a couple minutes explaining your ministry. I am Mercy. Yeah. Um, it, the different branches, and then if if people want to support what you're doing, I yes. imagine like myself. I mean, yeah. it's just like I am deeply moved at this point to help. I mean, I'm I'm trying to steward my own kids well. I want I want to expose them to some of the things right. that you're talking about. They don't have a frame of reference to know what a street kid is. So maybe someday I'll reach out and say, "Hey, can I can I bring my family over and uh, and visit you guys?" You know, yes. but yeah. But like, if if fathers listening to this want to help and either support what you're doing or figure out more about what they can be doing in their own kids' lives, uh, yeah, tell us about I Am Mercy and how they can help yeah. and support. Yeah. So we have a number of programs at I Am Mercy. The biggest on campus thing we do is the Daily Bread program where we have about seven to 800 coming out every Saturday, going through the life of Christ. This past Saturday was 816, learning about the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, and the biggest feeding we've ever had is 1,555, the last feeding of last year. Um, 
And it's, it's almost, it's almost like think of like a VBS or Sunday school like environment where this, but this for them, for most of them is the closest thing they have to church. And our teachers at I am mercy are the closest thing they have to a pastor. So this is where they are. And we've had, uh, over the last two years, we've had 424 professions of faith and baptisms. Um, so kids and not just kids, teenagers and adults are coming to know Jesus. Um, we also have a ministry that helps pregnant teenagers. Um, you know, during COVID, uh, a lot of girls were getting pregnant. Uh, their men were abandoning them. They were turning to not just abortion, but even infanticide, taking a baby that had already been born and throwing it in the, in the toilet um, or otherwise killing the child. So we have Shiloh's Cradle, which, which helps babies be born into the world and walks with that mom. Our female staff walk with that mom and pay medical bills. We've helped over 40 or 45 babies be born into the world. Um, so we've got our, our irons and a number of fires. You know, we've got 50 street kids that come to the center throughout the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday for tutoring, gospel lesson, and a hot meal. Um, so there's, Lots of things we're doing. And of course, Vincent's program is in front of 3,000 kids a week yeah, I love that. through taking the gospel to the schools. Um, so if you feel moved to give, you can go online. I am mercy. It's only one M. I-A-M-E-R-C-Y. I-A-M-E-R-C-Y dot org. You can give online. Uh, you can write a check to International Alliance for Mercy and mail it uh if you go to our contact page, our mailing address, 359 Downing Street, Roanoke, Virginia, 24019. But if you go to our website, it'll be on the contact page. Um, we definitely need your help. You know, the budget this year is $352,000. And on furlough, I need to raise an additional $100,000 just to meet budget. You know, somebody said, what would you do with a $20,000 check? Everything I just said. I need $100,000 just to meet budget. Of course, if we can do this on a third of a million dollar budget, what could we do with a million dollar budget? So if you feel moved, please, we could use the help. And just like the the parable of the loaves, and the, not the parable, the, the story of the loaves and the fish, you know, God multiplies mm -hmm. and it sounds Absolutely. like, I mean, with 1,555 people coming through, I mean, he's taking a dollar <laughs> and he is expanding Absolutely. it and growing Absolutely. it. So yes, that's right. Um, well, I look forward to continuing to support what you're doing. I just love that God appointed this time to have this conversation. I thank you for carving some time out of your furlough window to speak with us and our listeners. You and I will stay in touch. But thanks for sharing stories, for what you're doing around the world, for being a faithful father yourself, and for helping us to better understand what it means to be a faithful father as well. Thanks, Brett. So with that, we will wrap up this episode of the Faithful Fatherhood Podcast. Be blessed. Have a great week. And we'll talk with you again on the next episode. Take care, everyone. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying.